Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 100 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get rolling for this episode of the podcast, I just wanted to take an opportunity to thank everyone for listening to the last episode of the podcast, which was my trip report outlining my most recent Vegas vacation back in mid-December. I did reviews on my hotel experience at the Cosmo, the restaurants my wife and I checked out, and the shows we took in. Being that we were in Vegas for seven days and that it was our first time down in almost two years, we packed a lot into this trip, meaning that the episode is also pretty jammed. If you haven't had a chance to listen as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 99, The December Trip Report, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, here we go. On to the show. Back in March of 2021, for various reasons, I put this podcast on a hiatus, but I noticed people were still listening and downloading past episodes. As I watched the download numbers continue to grow, I made a commitment to both myself and to you, the audience. When I hit 100,000 total downloads, a milestone that a relatively small percentage of podcasts actually hit, I'd begin releasing new episodes once again. Jeff Does Vegas crossed that 100,000 total download mark in September of 2021. And since then, I've had the opportunity to have some pretty incredible conversations with some amazing guests. Now, as I reach another milestone, episode number 100, I thought it might be fun to go back and share some highlights from a few of those recent conversations, as well as let you in on what's coming up over the next few episodes. Enjoy. We begin with my conversation with Jonathan Jossel, the CEO of the Plaza Hotel and Casino in downtown Las Vegas. 2021 marked the 50th anniversary of the Plaza, the property having opened on July 1st, 1971. Something I'd noticed as of late, both in recent trips to Vegas and on social media, was an increase in interest in downtown Las Vegas. I wanted to get Jonathan's take on what he thought was behind that uptick. It's everything that we've uh, we've been working towards. Um, you know, there's definitely been a shift. I don't even know if it's since the pandemic. I think we saw it happening before the pandemic. Downtown was the fastest growing gaming submarket in, in in the state. So it's definitely been happening. I think the pandemic maybe has helped a little bit because downtown rebounded quicker and that we opened up quicker. Uh, a lot more amenities happened. Of course, Circa came to the market, which is the first ground-up casino downtown, which helped all of us downtown. Um, but I think really what's happened is that, to me, downtown was always a destination. You saw that in the numbers coming to Fremont Street Experience. The problem was I think people would come down here from the Strip and say, gee, I saw the light show, now what? But now you got nice restaurants you've got great steakhouses you've got great restaurants and not just on Fremont Street Experience but further down you've got great bars 
uh, in the Arts District, in East Fremont. You've got four new pools in the last few years. You've got new hotel rooms. You know, we, we've all re, uh, reinvested in our properties. So now people can come downtown and say, gee, I can look at the light show and the history and the old lights and the neon, but also I can stay downtown, I can eat downtown, I can drink downtown, there's shows. There's so much happening in downtown every weekend that wasn't originally happening. So you've got so many more reasons for people to stay and play downtown versus before it was just, oh, we'll visit it for a day, but then we're going back to the strip. And then when you finally add in the fact that there's nice amenities and better offerings, of course, value comes into question. And the value downtown is a better value, whether it's the cost of a drink, whether it's the cost of your meal, whether it's the cost of your hotel room or your gambling odds. I don't know that you're getting a uh, single zero roulette on the strip anymore. I don't know that you're getting uh, three to two blackjack, 10 times odds on crabs. You might at a couple of places, but for the most part, people that want a good gamble, they know that that's not happening as much on the strip anymore as it is down here. And that's something that we embrace. Other than that shift to more interest in downtown Las Vegas, what are some of the other big changes that you've seen in the city over the last several years in the time that you have been um, living in Vegas and working in Vegas? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing that I've seen, obviously, in the last few years has been the introduction of sports to our town. You know, we never had sports prior. Now you got the Golden Knights, you got the Raiders, you got the Las Vegas Lights, you got the Aces, you got the Aviators. UFC has always been down here in town as an exclusive thing for, for us. So, I mean, now you've got a real sports, I think, and NASCAR is a big one. Um, that wasn't there a few years ago. And then the what I'm most excited for downtown is this idea that people are starting to live downtown. You know, when I met with uh, some of the other operators off the strip, whether it's like the South Point, for example, they do great because they have a local business during the week. Downtown really hasn't had that because there's no one. There was no one living down here. There, I shouldn't say no one, but there wasn't critical mass downtown. But to the west of the plaza, there's just been built 800 apartments. Um, so once those get occupied, you're going to have a lot more people living downtown. There's more apartment buildings being built all around us. And to me, I think you know, as a as a city, it's just exploding in terms of population growth. But to see more people living downtown will be a really interesting dynamic for all of us casinos and hotels as to how that impacts our day-to-day business. And I know from my own experience in, in traveling to Vegas and having friends that live there, downtown was always kind of the big locals hangout. So if now all of the sudden you've got an even bigger population base of people living downtown, I mean, that's excellent for, for you guys as independent operators downtown and that now you've got an even bigger group of people who will be spending a lot more time in downtown Las Vegas. Yeah, exactly. And and the ones that were visiting, you know, they were coming for a night out to walk the street, but I'm talking about people coming on a daily basis, whether it's for lunch, for dinner, playing bingo, having that built in audience is something that we've never had downtown. If you look at the plaza, historically, if you look around us to the East, you had the Las Vegas club, which was uh, at the end of its life. And then you had to the South, the, Greyhound bus terminal, and to the west you had a dirt lot. And you you fast forward ten years, the Las Vegas club's gone and been replaced by Circa. The the Greyhound bus station's gone and about to be replaced by something else. 
And to the west, the dirt lot's been developed into 800 apartment buildings. So the neighborhood effect is really taking hold here at the plaza and downtown in general. I love having other Vegas content creators on the podcast. It's always fun talking to people who are as equally passionate about Las Vegas as I am, or sometimes even more so. I was lucky enough to have a conversation with Jordan and Ashton, the creators of the YouTube channel, Show Me Vegas. Whenever I'm talking to creators, one of the things I love finding out is what inspired them to start creating Vegas-related content in the first place. So I think a few years ago, we started watching some YouTube, some uh, Vegas YouTube videos. And this was back when it was a lot less crowded in the market. You know, there's a lot of Vegas bloggers out there today. If you go out on YouTube and search for anything in Las Vegas, you're going to get a couple dozen different, you know, bloggers that have made videos about it. But at the time, there were very few. And one of them was living in Las Vegas. And they just did a lot of live streams. They just walk around and talk about the property and just walk through the casinos. And it was really cool for us because we didn't get to go as often as we would like. And you're watching it on a, you know, a big flat screen TV and you, you just kind of feel like you're there. And we thought, you know, that would be a lot of fun to do. And there's no reason why we couldn't do that. Why don't we just give that a shot? And also, I think we thought, um, you know, if nobody else watches it, big deal. It's going to serve kind of as a scrapbook for ourselves. It's, it's kind of just to preserve our own memories. We can watch those back. If nobody else wants to watch it, we'll want to watch it back in 20 years and, and, and have those memories preserved. So it was almost as much that at the beginning. Yeah, it was kind of more of a just a, you know, by no, by no means did we think, you know, we were going to get a whole lot of followers at right, first. That anybody was, was going to want to watch us. Yeah. Um, it was just more kind of a passion thing, I guess. It was yeah. just, you know, for us. It's been a passion project from day one, just a kind of a creative outlet to just, just you know, do more research on Vegas and, and inspire us to do different things, things we haven't done before because we might be able to make a video out of it. And, um, you know, we started on YouTube. We tried to start on YouTube and I realized just how tough it was to get anybody yeah. to watch your YouTube videos. I mean, if you don't already have some type of following elsewhere on social media, you can just forget about it. And so we kind of drove that kind of drove us to Facebook and we created our Facebook page. And that grew and, and that grew mostly yeah. with friends and family at the beginning. And then uh, after a few off. trips, it kind of took off a little bit and we got you know, we got up to a few thousand followers on there. And then that's when we turned our attention back to, to YouTube, because at that point, YouTube had become a really big deal. And we still thought, you know, we can do that if we just really want to put in a little bit of work. And so we're still a, a big time work in progress. I like to watch, I like to go back to some of the big YouTubers and go back and look at their early stuff, because it makes me feel better <laughs> about our stuff, and especially our early stuff, because you know, sometimes I'll watch some of our early videos and I'll be like, this is, yeah, it's cringeworthy. Like, but, you know, I leave them out there. I don't take them down. I, I leave them out there. And I, I hopefully people can kind of follow the trail and be like, okay, these are getting better. <laughs> now, sometimes I'll go back and look at one I made two months ago and I'll be like, oh, that's way better than what I'm making now. What do, I gotta, I've got to figure out how to keep moving forward and not regress <laughs> and start making worse videos. But, you know, it all comes down to getting content while you're out there. And that's the hardest thing is interrupting your vacation by constantly having a camera in your hand. You know, we can't, we don't have the luxury of being able to go out there and stay for 10 days because our schedules don't allow it. So if we're there for three nights, 
sometimes we feel like we're, we're kind of hurting our vacation because we're constantly trying to get that shot or that clip or, you know, whatever it might be. That experience. That experience. And, you know, we don't want to ruin a great meal by trying to have a camera out and video ourselves the whole time. So that's a tough balance. But, uh, you know, really just long story short, it really started as a passion project and um, it just kind of grew from there. I love that it started as a passion project for you guys, because it was very similar for me with the podcast in that I had sort of become the de facto Vegas expert for my friends because of the number of trips that I was making down there. Um, I had it in the back of my head that I wanted to start a podcast, but I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. And then as I got people asking me more and more about Las Vegas, I thought, okay, cool. Yeah, this could be a podcast. And if it's just me and a few of my friends that listen, that's, that's cool. Um, one of the things that I had some issues with was trying to sort of hammer out a niche for my podcast, because in a similar world as, as the vlogging world, there are dozens of other Vegas related podcasts out there. Now, for the most part, most of them are about gambling or partying. Um, very few are, are sort of covering the bases and diving deep into stories and things like that. So that's kind of, I would like to say that's kind of where I found my niche. Did you guys struggle to find a niche for your vlogs to something to set you apart from all of the other, um, the other Vegas vlogs that are out there? Yeah, I would yeah. say it still is to this day. You know, I, I don't think we still necessarily have a style. Um, room tours and, and property walkthroughs are kind of what we like to do the most. I think, you know, food, um, food vlogs are hard. We, we watch yeah. quite a few of those and those are difficult to do. And so I think we're still trying to find that, you know, our, our little place in the uh, vlogging community because we do live stream some, but we're not live streamers. We do food videos occasionally, but we're not food vloggers. So I think we just kind of want to, we just want to bring whatever we think is something that someone will enjoy or something that we think, you know, people would like to see to them. It's kind of just a, something that's going to be helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's just something that's going to be helpful for people uh, who have, you know, whether it's their first time to Vegas or they've been to Vegas several times, we don't really have that, that niche quite yet. And I think, I don't know. I think that in itself maybe sets us apart just a little bit is that we don't have that. <laughs> is that we're all over the place? We're all over the place. <laughs> Sam Novak is the creator of the blog Vegas Unfiltered and has become known around Las Vegas as the guy who's not scared to share his opinion. Sam was someone I'd been wanting to get on the podcast for a long time, but our schedules just never clicked. I was finally able to connect with him and have him on the show. One of the things I wanted to know was what inspired him to create Vegas Unfiltered and share such honesty. Um, it was launched out of frustration and a few cocktails, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, Isn't that how all good stories start, though? Frustration yeah, and a few cocktails? <laughs> especially in Las Vegas, yeah. Uh, I was... Um, I had been on board with uh, Vegas Chatter for quite a while. They were, they were, uh, their parent comp, uh, company is Condé Nast Travel Network, very revered, very sophisticated. So um, I had to kind of reel in some of my more colorful opinions and uh, write for others. 
And when, when it collapsed, I got approached by one of our regular readers who thought it might be fun to kind of do a, like a, um, a guerrilla style knockoff of it, uh, which I, I was like, okay, yeah, we'll keep doing, I can keep doing what I've been doing, but adding to it and you know, adding a little Tabasco to it. And um, that was fun for a while, but uh, it lacked the cohesiveness that I'd like about Vegas Chatter. We had all these different writers that were, that we didn't communicate with one another. There was no direction, no guidance. And I, I kind of got frustrated with that. So I was looking for another website where I could still give my uh, uh, un, unfiltered opinions without uh, feeling like I was floating in a sea of nonsense. I got a few different uh, um, editors who had asked me to come on board. And I always told them, make sure you know exactly how I flow before you offer me anything. And, oh, yeah, we know you. We, we've read your stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> um, I, I, I signed on for this one website after I left the second one and um, wrote one very fluffy article just to introduce myself. And it was mostly with a, a, a senior readership from what I could tell. And after that first one, I, I presented three more that were more in my own personal style. And uh, every one of them was, oh, no, we can't, we can't publish this. This is negative. I'm like, it's not negative. It's honest. It's a bad show. It's a bad restaurant. And uh, the response was, well, we exist to draw people here. And I didn't, wasn't on board for that. Um, I was like, you promised I could write whatever I wanted without any uh, constraints, and you're not keeping that promise, so I'm out of here. At the time that uh, my third article, uh, the, the third refused article came through in an email, I was sitting at the Tropicana at the lounge there in the casino with um, two people that were about to launch a show there. One was uh, the MC, and the other was a financier and producer. And uh, we're getting a little tipsy and having a great time. And they're telling me all about their plans for this show. And I looked down at my uh, phone and saw that this email had come through where that my third article had been rejected. And I slammed down my glass, excused myself. I said, I'm sorry, I've got to go back to my hotel. Went back to my room, registered uh, the Vegas Unfiltered domain name, took those three articles that had been tossed, published them out immediately, and just kept running with it from there. That's amazing. I love that. And one of the things that uh, I love about your blog, as I said, I'm a huge fan of Vegas Unfiltered because of your honesty. Um, I don't want to say you don't care because obviously you do care, but what you don't care about is, or what it at least seems that you don't care about is upsetting the big corporations or, or the big show producers. There's so many other Vegas content creators that are either Vegas based or otherwise who really do appear to be in the pocket of some of those corporations and casino owners and, and, and um, show producers and such. Whereas you when you put a review out there, I mean, it's, there's, there's times that it is, I will, I will come right out and say it, it's pretty savage, quite frankly. I think that uh, anybody who's coming here deserves to know exact, 
truths. And most of the people that you're referring to, um, half the time that they spend is going to free shows, eating free dinners, you know, kissing up and getting, you know, as long as they keep writing positive things, they're going to keep getting more and more invitations to go back. Um, that's, that's buying a good review. And uh, I never felt there was a need to do that. Somebody sends me an invitation, of course, I'm going to take it. But uh, they need to know what they're going to get into if they've invited me. Because if the show sucks, I'm going to say so. I actually had to face that just uh, last month where um, I was invited to a show. It was an existing show that had moved to a different location. And while I was sitting there waiting for the show to begin, I looked down at my emails and the PR person, uh, one of the PR reps for the company that was representing the show, um, emailed me saying, oh, I I see that you're at our show. Uh, We want to send over some cocktails. (laughs) <laughs> to you. And um, I, I waited till after the show was over before I responded. I, I can buy my own cocktails. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, and the show was just as awful as it ever was. And I did write back saying, thank you for the offer, but um, the show still sucks. I'm not going to say anything nice about it. And um, keep me in mind <laughs> when you open up a better show. <laughs> and um they had their big official opening party just, I think, two weekends ago. And oddly enough, I wasn't on the invitation. Like, <laughs> David DeMont Mullen made his first appearance on the podcast back in 2019 in the episode Classic Vegas Mistakes. He made a return to the show to talk about planning the ultimate guy's trip to Las Vegas, sharing tips from his book, The Las Vegas Little Black Book, a guy's guide to the perfect Vegas weekend. We covered a lot of ground in our conversation, from picking the hotel to planning meals to figuring out how to get around, but arguably one of the most important things we talked about was planning your group outing to the strip club. Well, I think every group of guys definitely needs to go to a gentleman's club on their Vegas trip. And it's kind of part of the Vegas experience, that sort of thing. The the gentleman's clubs in Las Vegas are are some of the top clubs anywhere. Um, so those are amazing places. You know, the, the top one is called Spearmint Rhino. That one's only open at night, for, open from 9 p.m. at 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. But that is just an amazing experience to go to. It gets pretty crowded on uh, at 11 o'clock. So if you're going to go there, go a little bit early or go a little bit late. Um, but don't act a fool when you get in there, right? So this, uh, you know, just have a drink. If, um, you know, tip the girls on stage, a you dollar know, or two dollars, um, get a, don't feel bad about if a girl comes over and, and is asking to, for you to pay for a lap dance, if you turn her down, it's not a big deal. Um, and just enjoy yourself as a group of guys versus, you know, one of the guys going into a VIP room and not seeing him for hours and them charging his credit card, thousands of dollars and that sort of thing. But I think that, um, um, a lot of these, a lot of these gentlemen's clubs have great TVs for sports also. So if you're like, you know, where, where should we watch this game? Should we watch it in uh, the sports book or should we go watch it over at, you know, Crazy Horse 3? You know, I would say if you're a group of guys, go to Crazy Horse 3, watch the game. You're going to have a much better experience over there. It's funny that you mentioned going to the gentleman's club for um, something other than the obvious, like whether you're going there for the sports or going there for the food. When I've been in Las Vegas, I've had friends who have said, hey, why don't we go to such and such a place? They've got amazing sushi or they've got amazing steaks. Like it's just so odd and bizarre. It's not really something that you'd think of. 
Yeah, yeah, and strip, they're they're notorious for their w- wings. Most strip clubs that you know have their own special version of wings. Um, Crazy Horse Three, the one in, in Las Vegas, which is <clears throat> down near the stadium near uh, Mandalay Bay, they uh, they have a pretty and uh, pretty great kitchen, and they serve food twenty four seven there. So if it's late night, you want a meal, you can you can get one there. Um, there's one called um, Treasures, which actually has a steakhouse um, associated with it right next to it. Which is a great place to have a steak, and then walk over inside the uh, inside the club. Um, but it's a you know it's it's a fun part about Vegas. If you're there on a, a weekend like March Madness, one of these conventions, most of these places are so packed with you know the 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 sales guys you know taking their clients out for uh, uh, out to the clubs that it's not even worth going to. It's so crowded. I definitely think you should go there. Now, one of the things to avoid is never take the advice of a taxi driver or an Uber driver on where to go because uh, taxi drivers, Uber drivers get kickbacks from the gentlemen's clubs for every guy, they, every person they bring in. And some of these places are notorious ripoffs. You're going to have a horrible time, but the taxi driver is getting $50 per person walking in there. So a lot of time, a lot of times they'll tell you that, Oh no, no, you know, Spearmint Rhino is under construction or, Oh no, this, that place uh, closed last year to try to get you to a new place. I'll just tell them where exactly where you're going and, and don't, don't deviate. Yeah. You know what? I've heard that from a few people where they've said, yeah, I want to go to treasures and the cab driver tells them, no, 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 you don't want to go to treasures. You want to go to, uh, uh you want to go to crazy horse three. So I'm going to take you there instead. And, and I always kind of assumed that that was a thing where the cab drivers were getting spiffed by the, the club owners. And so it's kind of interesting to hear that confirmed. Oh, absolutely. That's where they make, that's where they make pretty much all their money. Um, so some of these clubs actually have a their own like limo shuttle where you can call them and they'll they'll get you out there for free, um, which is you know if you you got a group of six or eight guys they you might as well call them see what they'll bring you out there. Um, don't feel bad if you don't want to hang out there all night. Just you know always jump, there's taxis waiting to outside every gentleman's club to bring you right back to the strip. Um, and but one of the things also is like you don't want to have to you don't if you go there at like four o'clock five o'clock in the morning, it's kind of you know, it's not as fun as it would be at nine or 10 o'clock at night. You know, it's kind of, uh, you know, the, the girls have been working all day. The place is kind of beat up and people are, are getting drunk and sl- a little sloppy. So I would say, you know, if it's 4 a.m. in the morning and one of your buddies is saying, hey, we, let's go to the gentleman's club, you know, try to convince them just to, you know, let's let's get a drink downstairs at the center bar or let's play some more blackjack versus making that trip out there. <laughs> Legit true crime junkies Anthony and Megan Smith are the creators of the website Mayhem in the Desert, which takes a dive into the more sordid side of Las Vegas' past. Born and raised in Las Vegas, the pair decided to take on the task of chronicling some of the crime stories that helped shape Las Vegas' history. During our conversation, Anthony shared some of their favorites. Definitely Benny. Um, And he actually, um, my wife's uh, father worked at the horseshoe uh, as a dealer for quite some time and had nothing but nice things to say about Benny Binion. Uh, Very generous, very affable. Um, So there was that side to him, but there certainly was a more dangerous side to Benny Binion. Uh, And that's part of why we like him because Vegas can be a town of extremes. uh, And I think Benny really captures that. Uh, And so two of the stories that we've written about him uh, one was about a uh, very unfortunate cab driver uh, by the name of Marvin Shumati in the 1960s that uh, he'd been a low-level crook, 
Uh, and he fell into uh, the orbit of one of Benny Binion's enforcers, uh, a fellow by the name of Tom Handley. Um, now, Shumadi, in the course of uh, these interactions, uh, his son, who was in his early 20s, befriended Ted Binion, who was about the same age. And Shumadi, from there, uh, developed this plot, uh, get-rich-quick scheme, that he could use his son's connections with Ted Binion uh, to kidnap the young Ted Binion uh, and then hold him for ransom. Now, he told this to a few of his buddies at a bar that he fre frequented uh, on Flamingo and Paradise, uh, and they apparently were game at the beginning. Uh, at a certain point, Shumadi came to the conclusion that the only way to get away with the crime uh, would be to murder Ted Binion. Now, once he told his friends that, one of them got cold feet and reached out to an associate of Benny Binion uh, to inform him that this Shumadi character uh, was involved in a plot against his son. Benny Binion said, thank you very much. Here's a few hundred dollars and you have 24 hours to get out of town. Uh, <laughs> that gentleman uh, wisely took that advice and moved to the East Coast. Uh, Marvin Shumadi, for his part, after Benny Binion had been tipped off, he arrived at that same bar where he'd hatched the plot. Uh, this is in late uh, December of 1967, but he never made it inside. Uh, Tom Hanley, it's believed, uh, met him outside the bar and told him they were going for a drive to the edge of town. Uh, the few days later is when they found Marvin Shumadi's body uh, at the base of Sunrise Mountain. Uh, he, in typical organized crime fashion, had been shot once in the chest uh, and then one final shot uh, behind the ear. Uh, local press alluded to a um, well-known gambling uh, executive potentially being involved in the plot, uh, but no one was ever arrested, no one ever charged. Another fascinating story with Benny Binion involved the uh, first resident FBI agent in Las Vegas, a gentleman by the name of Bill Colthard. And he liked Las Vegas so much, he retired from the FBI uh, and started working as an attorney in town. Uh, he married into a, a family of a wealthy casino executive uh, and became a fairly well-known businessman in his own right. Now, through those dealings, Bill Colthard ended up getting a 35% ownership interest in the land that the horseshoe sits on. So Benny Binion, he didn't own the land. He had to lease it. And the lease was up for renewal in the early 1970s. Uh, and as you might expect, the straight-laced former FBI agent wasn't inclined to renew the lease for this well-known uh, gambler and fellow that had a reputation for violence. Uh, Benny Binion did his best to negotiate, uh, made uh, uh, substantial uh, monetary offers to uh, accomplish a renewal of the lease. But when that didn't work, um, one day Bill Colthard got into his car in downtown Vegas, uh, leaving his law office, and the explosion could apparently be heard all throughout uh, downtown. Uh, it killed uh, Mr. Colthard instantly. Uh, the interests in the land that the horseshoe sat on went to some other individuals who then decided, uh, probably wisely, to renew the lease for an additional 100 years. Now, again, that one, they strongly suspected Benny Binion and Tom Hanley as being the uh, trigger man behind the bombing, but they could never uh, make a firm link. And I'm guessing that, as you said earlier, anybody that would have been involved was not willing to make that firm link either. <laughs> <laughs> no, they weren't. Uh, well, and Vegas is a town of uh, characters, uh, as you might know. 
And the lead detective on the case uh, was named Beecher's Avant. Whenever he would see Tom Hanley around town, he would yell at him uh, from across the street. Even I'm going to put you away for the cold heart killing. Wow. But apparently was never successful. What's another true crime story that you guys have really enjoyed putting together for the website? Well, one of the others is um, from the old West days of Las Vegas. Um, and it gives a little bit of an idea of what a frontier uh, town it was. Uh, there was a young child um, from the Romero household that was walking to school. Uh, Las Vegas maybe had 800 people in it uh, at the time, so very small town. Uh, but the child never came home. So the mother, uh, quite frantic, uh, enlisted the help of the local sheriff and some other townspeople. They fanned out, uh, and they luckily found the girl um, before any harm had come to her. And a newcomer to town uh, who worked at a local bakery, uh, his name was Walter Smith, uh, he was arrested by the sheriff and immediately brought to the one-room courthouse in downtown Las Vegas. Uh, the presiding judge, uh, Judge Lillis, questioned uh, Walter Smith and then at the conclusion said, well, we don't have enough evidence to try you for kidnapping, but you've got two hours to get out of town. And Sheriff Sam Gay who was a large, burly former security officer for the railroad before becoming sheriff, told uh, Walter Smith, you got 15 minutes to get out of my sight. Uh, and then he apparently was never heard from in uh, Southern Nevada again. It's beginning to feel like this whole tactic of telling people to get out of town on your own or else we're going to take you out of town. And if we take you out of town, there's going to be a problem it is quite a common thing that was done in the city of Las Vegas, whether it was uh, way back in the old West or during the, the organized crime days. Well, and I think that's a, an interesting through thread that may still go on today, but probably became less frequent with the uh, corporate control here in Las Vegas. Below the glitz and glamour of the Vegas Strip lies a massive network of underground tunnels. Originally designed to channel flash flood waters away from the big casinos and resorts, these tunnels have become a living space for hundreds, if not thousands, of homeless people in the city of Las Vegas. Author Matthew O'Brien is intimately familiar with those tunnels and their residents, having written multiple books on the subject and founding the charity Shine a Light a program that helps people living in the tunnels. During our conversation, Matthew shared what got him interested in the tunnels initially and his first experiences exploring them. When I was managing editor at Las Vegas City Life, when, when I heard about a murderer who had evaded the police by using the underground flood channels of Las Vegas, and so that gave me the idea to kind of maybe follow this guy's trail down in these tunnels to see what was down there. And that's when I started kind of reading up on and researching and actually exploring the tunnels. And, and it was kind of around this time and beyond where, you know, I reached out to the regional uh, flood control district in Clark County and started learning about how many miles of tunnels there were in the valley and why they were there, what their purpose was. So now I believe you have about 600 miles of flood channels in Las Vegas, uh, almost half of which are underground. These are only for when it rains. They don't, they're not used for sewage or for anything else. When it rains, you, we get heavy floods in Las Vegas. And these tunnels here, 
are there basically to protect the casinos and their property and not to interfere with tourism too much, or, or at least that's why they were built initially. But as you probably know, Vegas is a very dry city most of the year. You know, the, these, these tunnels are not, are not wet. And so what you have are, are people moving from outside being homeless where it's hot or it's cold or it's windy or you're harassed by the police or business owners to, as I discovered when I started researching this on my own, to, to living down in these underground flood channels permanently. And so then what was your first experience going down into the tunnels then? I mean, it had to have been mildly terrifying in that you don't really 100% know what you're walking into down there. When I was editor of City Life and I read about this murderer who would use the underground flood channels, I reached out to a freelancer, a guy named Josh Ellis, to see he was kind of a renegade, uh, Hunter S. Thompson type freelance first person perspective writer to see if he had any interest in exploring these. And, and he did. And I followed up with him a few weeks later. And he told me that he had walked one of these tunnels with a photographer friend and it was wet, even though it wasn't raining out and there were crawfish and he looked up in the manholes and there were spider webs and, and some of the manholes had clothing and possessions hanging um, down from them. And they didn't encounter anyone in this tunnel, but it was enough for me to say, well, when are you going to go into another one? And Josh didn't have a car at the time. So I offered to pick him up that weekend to drive him around to a few tunnels. And of course I ended up kind of going in with them and, and we started working on the story together at that point. But, uh, I mean, it's terrifying, especially then we had both seen some pretty crazy stuff above ground in broad daylight in Las Vegas. So we had no idea what might be going on in these dark, discreet tunnels. So we were um, erring on the side of caution. He, he had a big knife that he was carrying around with him and he was wearing a trench coat and we both had on, you know, knit caps or hard hats. And I had a golf club that I started using as a walking stick and for self-defense and uh, we, we were not expecting to find people down in these tunnels. That was not public knowledge at the time. Uh, a few police officers may have known that. Some people in the homeless population knew people were living down there. But Josh and I were expecting maybe to find some cool graffiti, some weird debris that had washed in there. So when we stumbled upon it, the first homeless camp down there, we were, we were in shock. And I'm sure as shocked as you were to come across a, a homeless encampment in the tunnels, the, the people that you encountered there must have been just as surprised as you were and maybe even uh, a, a little bit terrified in that, I mean, all of the sudden, two complete and total strangers have wandered into what is essentially their home. Sadly, City Life newspaper is not around anymore, but the two cover stories that Josh and I co-wrote have been collected in my second book, My Week of the Blue Angel, kind of reworked, expanded, and published in there. So a lot of this information is, is in that book there. But we were horrified, and the people who were in and saw us coming in, we're, we're both big guys, Josh and I, and we were armed, as I described, and they're not used to people that they don't know coming down in these tunnels. So 
you know, Josh and I were really on edge. They were really on edge. But what we were able to do is just say, hey, you know, we're journalists curious about these tunnels. Can, can we cut through? Do you need anything? You need water? Can we help you? And kind of engage these people in conversations. For the original articles, we didn't really go in depth with the conversations. It was pretty surface level. But the people were wary, a little apprehensive. And Josh and I were, were just kind of terrified of the whole situation, to be honest. Yeah. My first experience with Vegas musician David Perico came in the summer of 2017 when a random stranger suggested that my wife and I go check out his band, Hop Strings Orchestra, at Cleopatra's Barge in Caesar's Palace. We were absolutely blown away. This was a 14-piece orchestra featuring Vegas musicians who routinely perform with the likes of Celine Dion, Beyonce, Rod Stewart, Shania Twain, and Diana Ross, who were putting a new twist on our favorite pop and rock hits. This past year, David signed a deal with the Las Vegas Raiders to become the NFL team's official house band. David joined me on the podcast, and we talked about what it was like landing that gig. It's pretty amazing. I mean, uh, after 18 months off and, and coming out of, you know, 18 months of not playing to, you know, when I, when I knew the, the barge wasn't going to open again, this was our next gig. Mm-hmm. Our, this is our new residency, basically. You know, it's, uh, and I expanded, it's basically pop strings, which I expanded. I added two more singers and three more horns. So it's 19 total. And it was a process to audition. You know, there were other bands that were considered and a lot of other scenarios. And, um, you know, we, we definitely had to uh, prove that we can do it because it's, it's TV. Mm-hmm. It's basically TV. So not only do we have to play, but from my point of, you know, music directing, you know, everything is in-ear monitors. So they're calling the game. Okay, give me 20 seconds here, 25, give me 30, 40, 50, two minutes, one minute. So you've got to be like precision. And uh, it, we went through three, three audition processes, you know, to, to, and they finally narrowed it down to us, which I'm honored. What was that feeling like the first time walking out into a 65,000 fans at Allegiant stadium and being able to be there and go, Hey, we're here. That Like that's gotta be just an incredible feeling. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it is an amazing feeling. Um, and it's a, it's a feeling of validation too. And I'll say this, I mean, that the Raiders, you know, Mark Davis, the owner, this all stems from him. And the Raiders had a tradition since the late sixties of a band playing. It was Del Courtney big band in Oakland. And then in the, the days in LA, they've always had a band plant, but they didn't really brand it. It was just always music. And then getting the baton passed this way, it comes from Mark Davis and, and the entertainment team uh, and their vision at the Raiders wanting to do something completely unique. So if you come to, a, again, Ve- this is only in Vegas. If you come to a, a Las Vegas Raiders football game, the game is completely different than any other football game you're going to see between you know the lights and the leds and the live band and not only is it a live band it's a 19 piece band it's it's pretty awesome to be involved and i i can't thank the raiders organization enough mark davis and 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 the the whole entertainment team for their vision it's really awesome it's great for entertainment it's great for live music 
I'm I'm glad you mentioned about how different sports is in in Las Vegas with this kind of stuff. I'm uh, being Canadian, of course, it's legally required that I'm a hockey fan. Exactly. So you've been to the Knights games? I've been to several several Vegas Golden Knights games. So I mean, yeah. I get it, and it, it's it's insane. It's amazing, <laughs> and to try to describe the experience to people um, when you come back home and they say, "So you went to the game? How was it?" and you just say like. I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, the sound in the building is incredible and the intermission entertainment is Cirque du Soleil and the Blue Man group, as opposed to when you go to a Calgary Flames game here, it's human bowling and little kids playing hockey during the intermission. So, I mean, it's, it's just, it's not even a comparable experience. And so, I mean, again, it's just, it's so uniquely Vegas to have, as you say, this massive strings band playing playing during the game it's just it's so uniquely vegas yeah and their vision too like this lot was to have guest headlining entertainers sit in with the band so this last sunday sammy hagar and uh richie mcdonald from lone stars sang with the band and the halftime show was sammy hagar we did two songs which i arranged for and it was it was insane it was crazy it was so much fun sammy was great it just rocked. I mean, 65,000 people going crazy is, you know, it's too bad the Raiders are scuffling a little bit right now. <laughs> right. But, uh, but we're doing our part, you know, we're, we're trying to do our part. I mean, that's gotta be nuts when you get that phone call from the, the Raiders people going, so David, this week you're going to be performing with Sammy Hagar. It, it, I right. mean, is that how the call goes? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. And here's what he wants to sing. So they send me the music and then I have to transcribe it and then arrange it. For the five horns, the four singers, the six strings, and the rhythm section in like 48 hours. (laughs) (laughs) I love talking Vegas history on the podcast, and there's a much maligned period in Las Vegas' recent past that I really wanted to cover. The so-called family-friendly era of the 1990s. This was a time of castle-shaped hotels, pirate battles on the Strip, and full-blown amusement parks. Las Vegas was making absolutely no secrets about who they were trying to attract at that time. David G. Schwartz is a professor at UNLV, an author, and a Las Vegas historian. I've had David on the show previously, and this time around, I wanted to dive into this time period and find out what predicated the push to bring families to the city. It was a series of things. You know, first of all, you had that recession, like 78 to 82. There was that bad recession in the U.S. and many other parts of the world that wiped out the Vegas business model as it was, which was more dependent on high rollers, more dependent on serious gamblers. So, and if you look at the numbers, you can see the bad gaming deaths spiked, you know, they went up really high. So they just weren't getting the money from that. People believed, okay, to reinvent Las Vegas, we have to shift from this high roller model to a more mass market retail model. And Circus Circus under Bill Bennett was really poised to do that. And that's why Circus Circus became in the 80s, the most profitable casino company in the world, because again, they don't have a lot of money, but there's a lot of them, a lot of a lot of low rollers. And the other casinos also started to pivot towards this. It's kind of interesting. In set 1979, Circus Circus opens up their RV park, and Caesar's Palace opens up the Fantasy Tower, which I think is Nobu now. I, I used to know this 
I might be wrong in that. I believe it's now Nobu, but they opened that up. And that was geared as this, you know, lavish high roller amenities, which company did better circus circus, everybody else in the strip took notice of that. And if you look at the eighties, you can see quarter slot machines are becoming the dominant denomination. And really the table games are starting to recede even on the strip. The strip is becoming a little bit more like downtown. So that's, that kind of was the base for it. You start seeing that around like 83, 84 by 85, it's pretty much in full swing. 89, Steve Wynn gets the idea for the Mirage. And the idea for that, as you can see in the prospectus, as you can see in the media materials, when it opened was, this is a resort for affluent young families. Affluent people with families will come here. This is the first casino in Vegas that is a hotel with a casino attached, not a casino with a hotel attached. And the idea, even for Mirage, again, according to the prospectus, is that this would attract this group of people who hadn't come to Vegas, which were wealthy people who had kids. That was that was the original plan. It was taking that mass market, something that was called the Burger King Revolution, where basically they put a Burger King in the Riviera, which was the first fast food restaurant in a casino. And the idea like, hey, if you want to attract people in this generation, you've got to give them something familiar. You've got to appeal to these people who aren't high rollers. So yeah, Burger King is in. Bacchanal is out. I had read something about that whole Burger King model and and the whole idea of putting a Burger King in the Riviera and making it a, an attraction. And it always seemed a little bit odd to me that that was a thing. But I mean, realistically, that still goes today. There is that giant Taco Bell, the Taco Bell Cantina right on the strip. That's a part of the Planet Hollywood and Miracle Mile complex there that is constantly busy and i'm always seeing stuff on social media about it with people um getting married there and and posting uh, videos tiktoks and instagram and such from there and and so i guess i mean they're still doing it to this day yeah and like i've heard i don't know if it's true but i've heard that the in and out is the most profitable in and out in the country i've heard that the denny's and that one of the denny's in the strip is the most profitable denny's and the the guy at the riviera who got the idea to do that jeff silver told me that he saw it from his window, we could see Circus Circus and he could see people walking past Circus Circus in their 199 buffet and going to McDonald's. And he just got the idea, hey, people want that familiarity. And it's also po- possible that they'd already eaten at the Circus Circus buffet and that was why they were going past it. But, you know, the idea was a sound one, which is that people, even if they come to Vegas, want something familiar. And yeah, a lot of people say, well, why would you go to Denny's? If you're in Vegas, you know, not everybody's a foodie. So not everybody wants that unique experience and they just want something to eat. They know what it is. They move on. So after Steve Wynn opens up the Mirage in the late 80s, and as you said, he he opened that with the intention of trying to attract um, affluent people with their families, you see this influx and opening of resorts that are maybe a little bit more blatantly family friendly and uh, a little more budget conscious. I'm thinking of the Excalibur and Luxor and the second incarnation of the MGM Grand with its amusement park and um, Treasure Island. Yeah. So Mirage, I mean, families were one level. It was also very much into high rollers and traditional gamblers. You know, they hosted boxing, but a lot of it was was building that 
filling a 3,000 room resort, you need to have a lot of people. And families were one of the group, of course, business travelers too. Excalibur, which Circus Circus developed, was really an extension of Circus Circus and that idea saying, hey, we give people a, you know, the Circus Circus idea of giving them a cheap room. There's a lot of them. Add on to that this theming element of old England, medieval England, and making it even more family-friendly for people. So I think you have that. You know, Luxor, of course, did evolve a lot. Originally, that was supposed to be their answer to Mirage, but there was a lot of changes, and eventually they, you know, that property obviously has pivoted a lot. But I think, you know, I remember most fondly the version with the canals and the animatronic camels and, and all that. So you had that, you know, and of course, Treasure Island is a big one, which is basically Steve Wynn had the kind of GM model for for giving people stuff at every price point. So you have the Golden Nugget downtown, you have the Mirage, and then you have Treasure Island, which was Mirage on a 400 million or so budget instead of a 600 million or so budget. You know, basically the same thing, make it even more appealing to families. And some of these resorts really did try to go the extra mile to bring families in, didn't they? I mean, you mentioned um, Luxor having the Nile River ride and the animatronic camels. Um, Excalibur was probably the the be-all and end-all of that between just the fact that they were shaped like a giant castle. They also had the um, the Merlin the Magician and the big dragon show out front with the fire-breathing dragon and all of that going on, which, I mean, again, was obviously um, intended to bring those families in and give them a little piece of Vegas. Yeah, you know, and again, the idea was it's not a dumb idea. There's a lot of people with kids. If you want to expand Vegas from being a 20 million person year market to a 40 million year person visitor market, it would help to have something for kids to do. So it was not a bad idea. And that's that. I hope you've enjoyed this little trip back in time with some of my favorite conversations from the past few episodes of the podcast. If you want to listen to the complete episodes, check out the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com for links to the archives, or head to wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and start listening now. In the meantime, I've got lots planned for the next few episodes of the show. I've got conversations lined up with entertainers, fellow content creators, and with things opening up once again, plans for more trips to Vegas. So get ready for upcoming trip reports. That wraps up another episode of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas, or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. The Jeff Does Vegas podcast is a Walker New Media production.